All right, so last week after our uh, service here in the living room, I had the opportunity to talk to one of our worship team members, and, uh, and she, I love this woman. She's a precious friend of ours, been friends for a long time. And she came up and she said, you know, I'm going to be honest. She said, when I heard that we as a church were entering into this season in which we're going to talk about revival, I really was not excited about that. And so we kind of unpacked that a little bit because I think that that's probably, you know, emblematic of a lot of other people as well. It's like, oh, man, because we don't. We don't know what it is. And that was kind of her point. Like she came to me after the message and she said, all right, so here's the deal. Uh, I wasn't excited, but now I'm excited because I realized that those things that I went to, those things that I attended, those things that I was a part of that were named revivals were not actually revivals. And that is so much of what I was trying to accomplish last week. It was just reclaiming the definition of this word revival. But here's what I was not trying to accomplish last week, and I'm not trying to accomplish it now either. I am not at all critical of churches that hold revivals. I'm not. I shared with you, if you were with us last week, my own experience with those kinds of things, and it was a wonderful experience. I think people come to faith through those things. I think God is oftentimes honored in those kinds of things. I think the church itself is rallied in those kinds of things. I think a lot of good comes through those revivals, but they're not revivals. That's the only point that I was trying to make. Guys, a revival is not something you can put on a calendar. It's not something you can schedule. You can't say, hey, we're going to have a revival, guys. Second week of June. You know, like if somebody said that to me, I'd be like, really? Did God like appear to you? Did he, did he reveal this to you? How did you know? Like, because if that's the case, I'm coming. I mean, if I've got to quit my vacation, I'm coming. If I have to fly halfway across the world, I want to be there like God is going to be there. He's going to pour himself out on your church. Second week of June. Well, no, that's not actually the way that it happened. So it's like, no, you can't do that. Revival is, it's different. It's not something you can put on a schedule, and you can't put it on a schedule because you can't bring it. A revival is the sovereign work of the sovereign Lord. He decides if it comes. He decides when it comes. He decides where it comes, to whom it comes, how it comes, how long it comes. Like, he does all of it. Let me just think for a moment about what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. It's powerful. He said, guys, the Holy Spirit is like the wind, okay? So here's the deal. You can feel him when he comes, but here's what you can't do. You can't schedule it. That's like saying, hey, I'm going to be working out in the yard tomorrow. It's going to be 98 degrees and 100% humidity, and I'm going to schedule some wind. I mean, you can, you know, bring a fan with you and extension cord, and, but that's the best you've got. So it is with the Spirit. You don't know where he comes from. You don't know where he's going. You don't know how long he's going to stay, but when he's there, you know he's there. Revival is not an event on a calendar, and a revival is not primarily an evangelistic event, by the way, either. Like, at its heart, that is not what it's about. Now, it is absolutely the case that hundreds of people, sometimes thousands of people, sometimes tens of thousands of people, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ during a revival, but that's the effect of the revival. That is not the revival itself. So last week we talked about revival, and we said that a revival is a special season of divine manifestation in which God the Holy Spirit awakens his slumbering church. It's like he rends the heavens, as Isaiah said last week. Oh, God, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and he bends down to the dying embers of a fire in the heart of the church that's about to go out. 
And through his spirit, he blows upon it until it bursts into flame again, until it's a roaring fire, until it's a conflagration, okay? Which leads us to the question for today, which is, all right, great, but what's the point of the fire? Like, what's the goal of the awakening? What is God's purpose? What is his reason in bringing revival? Because when you study the history of revival, you realize, I mean, there are a lot of possible answers to that. I mean, you know, so let's just take the Welsh revival of 1904 as an example. So in the Welsh revival, it was marked by evangelism. They had 70,000 people come to faith in Jesus Christ in two months. I want you to think about that because Welsh in 1904, in terms of population, was roughly the equivalent of Broward County today. 70,000 people, new conversions to Christianity, two months. And so when you absorb that, if you're thinking, man, you know, like there are people in my life that I want to see come to Jesus, and there's this person in my family, and then there's these people in my office, and then there's these folks in my neighborhood, and I mean, or maybe you just have a passion to see people come to faith in Jesus, period, and you're like, oh man, that's amazing. Like, I want revival. God, rend the heavens and come down, because I, deep down in my heart, am hungry for that. Okay, that's a good hunger, but it's not the right hunger. It's not the goal. It's not the point. It's an effect. The Welsh revival was marked by passionate singing. G. Campbell Morgan, who was the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, heard stories of the revival that was happening in Wales, and he's like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to go see this for myself because, I mean, look, if this is really happening, you know, you you, you quit your vacation. Like, you, you go to where this is happening. And so he went to Wales and he was stunned by the energy of their worship. Here's what he said. He said, no books, but oh my, I nearly wept tonight over the singing of our last hymn. Why? Because he didn't want it to end. When these Welshmen sing, they sing the words like men who believe them. They abandon themselves to their singing. We sing as though it, you know, we thought it would not be respectable to be heard by the man next to us. No choir, did I say? It was all choir. In hymns, I stood and listened in wonder and amazement as that congregation on that night sang hymn after hymn, long hymns sung through without hymn books. If that's what your passion is, like if that's what your hunger is, if that's what you desire, you hear stuff like that, you go, oh, Lord, rend the heavens, you know, come down, breathe on the embers, they're about to go out, burst this thing into flame because I want to experience that. It's a good hunger. It's a healthy appetite. But it's not the goal. It's not what we're to be most hungry for. The Welsh revival brought sweeping cultural and societal change. During the time of the revival, uh, the police were mostly left with nothing to do. The court systems were empty, which, you know, is terrifying if you're a lawyer, okay? But, like, for everyone else, that's amazing. Think what that means. No criminal activity, no civil discord, no strife, no breaches of contract, nobody suing anyone else. Can you even imagine that? Bars and saloons shut down for lack of customers. Traveling theatrical companies canceled their engagements because everybody was in church. Old debts long forgotten, paid in full. It was said that cursing disappeared from society, which was confusing not just to the people but to the horses who had grown accustomed to responding to the cursed commands of their masters. No kidding, that's part of the story. 
At one rugby match, a pastor said that he heard one man curse who thereupon repented in front of everyone. Of the 40,000 people there, 10,000 began singing hymns. Relationships were healed. Marriages were restored. Like, you hear that stuff and you think, my goodness, God, rend the heavens and come down. Like, because I'm hungry for that. I want to live in a city like that. Okay, well, everybody does. It's a healthy appetite but it's actually not the goal of revival. The goal of revival and what it is that we ought to most hunger for is the presence of God revealed to the world through his people. Guys, God is the presence. God is the prize. God is the goal. God is the gift. It's about his presence, which then gets revealed to the world. Through his people, it's his presence with us. And we see that all over the Bible, again and again and again and again. But we see it today in the prayer of Moses, that Moses prays. And you'll remember from the life of Moses, as Moses was sent by God into the land of Egypt to to rescue his people from slavery, to lead his people and deliver them from 430 years of slavery in the land of Egypt. And notice how he does it. He does it miraculously, like God's presence revealed to the world, not just to Egypt, Everyone in the world heard about this. Forty years later, when the Israelites arrive in Canaan, what do the Canaanites say? They're like, oh, man, we have heard about what your God, who lives in your presence, did to the Egyptians. And they were terrified. God's presence revealed to the world through his people. God brought plague after plague, ten plagues, miraculous plagues, announced in advance plagues. Oh, and by the way, we'll tell you when it's going to end plague. Plagues that only afflicted the Egyptians, but saved the Israelites like they were rescued from it. They were immune. It was remarkable again and again and again and again until the back of Pharaoh was broken and the Israelites were sent out. Moses leads them out of Egypt. He leads them up to the Red Sea. They're terrified on the edge of the Red Sea as Pharaoh's armies bear down upon them seeking revenge. God parts the waters of the Red Sea. They go through on dry ground. They get to the other side. They throw a big worship service. It's kind of a memorable moment. They're thirsty. He miraculously provides water. They're hungry. He miraculously provides food. Moses takes them, led by God, all the way up to the base of Mount Sinai where he leaves them camping in the shadow of the mountain. And he says, guys, stay here And I'm going to come back, like I'm going to go up on the mountain, I'm going to receive the law of God, and then I'm going to come back down on the mountain and bring the law to you. And he goes up onto the mountain, and he stays too long, at least in the estimation of these people. So they abandon God, they abandon Moses, and they create out of their jewelry. They melt it down, and they create a golden calf. And the golden calf is presented to the people as the God who had just done all of those things. And the end result of that, at least by the time you get to Exodus 33, is that God says to Moses, look, you know, here's the deal. I'm not going to destroy them, but I'm not going to go with them. Like, I'm going to fulfill all of my promise, Moses. You take them into the promised land. I'll send an angel with you into the promised land, and they're going to get everything that I promised to give them. They're going to get cities they didn't build. They're going to get farms and fields and vineyards and orchards they didn't plant or tend. Like they're going to get wealth. They're going to get comfort. They're going to get safety. They're going to get all of these things that they've been longing for for 430 years, all for free. But what they're not going to get is me. So they get all the gifts, but they don't get the giver. And I want you to think about that for a minute because that's kind of an interesting offer. 
How would your heart respond to that? So wait a minute. So what you're telling me is that I can get all the things I want from God, that I've been longing for from God, that I've been looking for from God, that I've been praying to God that he might give me. And though I don't get God, right? Like, so he's not going to live in my presence. I don't, I guess, need to worship him. I don't feel at least like he's looking over my shoulder all the time. Like I, I don't feel like necessarily then that I'm going to be accountable to him. So I'm, I'm kind of like set free from him to enjoy all the things that I want from him. He'll give me all that and freedom to do what I want. It's interesting. Guys, we need to learn from the heart of Moses. Moses is like, no, that's a terrible deal. That is absolutely not enough. That is definitely unacceptable. In Exodus 33, beginning of verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, see, he says, you God, say to me, Moses, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Now, you know, you've ruled yourself out as an option and you've told me you're going to send an angel, but that's unacceptable. That's not enough for me. Yet again, God, he says, you have said to me, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. He says, now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, well, then please show me your ways. Like, help me to understand you, Lord. Why? that I may know you in order to find, the idea being the kind of favor in your sight that I'm actually hungry for, that I really and truly want. And then he adds this comment. He says, consider too that this nation, flawed as it is, there's no hiding from that. There's no running from that. There's no concealing that. Look, God, I'm frustrated with them too. Like, I mean, you know, like, but consider too that this nation, flawed as it is, is still your people. What is Moses saying? He's saying, look, God, it doesn't matter if I have your favor, but I don't have the favor of your presence. It doesn't matter if we're called your people if we don't have you. He's saying, look, the prize was never deliverance from Egypt or deliverance from the Red Sea or deliverance from the terrifying deprivations of being stuck out here in the wilderness with two million people that need water and that need food and that need all kinds of other things. Just like God, it was never the promise of the promised land. It wasn't the cities that we haven't built. It wasn't, you know, the farms and fields and vineyards and wealth and comfort and safety and all of the, like, that's not what we were ever after. What we're after is you. So here's the deal. Like, if you're not going into the promised land with us, then we're not going. We'll just stay out here in the wilderness with you. And God hears that heart and he responds to it. He says in verse 14, he he says effectively, Okay, Moses, my presence will go with you. And I, not some angel and certainly not you, Moses, but I will give you rest in that land. And Moses said to him, Okay, all right, but just to be sure, I want to be sure that we're communicating clearly. Like, I, I don't want there to be any problems here. So hear what I'm about to say. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here because we don't want the blessing without the blesser. We don't want the deliverance without the deliverer. We don't want the salvation without the Savior. We don't want the gift without the giver. We don't want the effects of revival without the one who brings about all the effects, the one who is himself the goal and the gift of revival. God, we don't want to go anywhere without you. He says, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, And then he answers his own question. He says, is it not? And you're going with us so that we are distinct, so that we are different, so that we are unique, I and your people. 
Your presence is what makes us unique from every other people on the face of the earth. And again, what is he saying? He's saying, God, don't you see it? Your name is attached to these people. Where they go, everyone knows. The whole world, because of what you did in Egypt, knows. They bear your name. They are your people. There is nothing short of your glory attached to this request. My goodness, Lord. I mean, these people just fashioned an idol and worshipped it in the shadow of the very mountain that you and I were at the top of meeting on. And I told them, I'm coming back, guys, and I'll have the law with me. Okay, what would happen with them? And therefore then, what would become of your name? If you sent them out, you sent them into the promised land, you gave them everything, and for free, they don't even have to work for it. You pour gasoline on all of their avarice, on all of their consumerism, and you leave them alone. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and I, I love this man. He's commenting on this passage. He says, the church, after all, is the church of God. She is his new creation by water and word. We are called a people for God's own peculiar possession. And why has he called us out of darkness into his own marvelous light? Surely it is so that we may show forth his praises, his excellencies, his virtues. And therefore, we should be concerned about this matter. What matter? This matter of revival, this matter of the very presence of God among us. We should be concerned about this matter primarily because of the name and the glory and the honor of God himself. He says, whether we like it or not, it is a fact that the world judges God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ and the whole of the Christian faith by what it sees in us. We are his representatives. We are the people who take his name upon us. We are the people who talk about him. And the man outside the church regards the church as the representative of God. Therefore, he says, I argue that we must emulate the example of Moses as we find it here. And what example is that exactly? It's the example of someone who looks at the mission given to a very broken people, a people who are no way equipped for this, and who have proved it again and 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 again, with nothing short of the glory of God at stake, and says, oh God, look, if you're not going to go with us, we're not going. We'll stay in the wilderness. (laughs) We'll deal with the deprivation. Like... The goal is your presence. Everything else is just an effect. The goal of revival and what we should most hunger for is the presence of God revealed to the world through broken vessels like me and you, through his people, through his church, which brings us back to the Welsh revival, by the way, which like every other revival in the history of revivals was marked by an overwhelming sense of God's presence amongst his people. Listen to some of the quotes. One pastor said, if one were asked to describe in a word the outstanding feature of those days, one would unhesitatingly reply that it was a universal, inescapable sense of the presence of God. The Lord had come down. A sense of God's presence was everywhere. It pervaded, nay, he says, it created the spiritual atmosphere. I want that. Another pastor said, eternal issues were discussed freely and unashamedly. 
And above all, a sense of the presence and holiness of God pervaded every area of human experience, at home, at work, in shops, in public houses. Eternity, he said, seemed inescapably near and real. That would be different. Yet another pastor said, I have no more doubt of its being a work of God than I have of my own existence. As to describing the revival and estimating its results, can you put into words those deep and hallowed experiences of life realized when God meets you almost palpably and sways your whole being crossword, heavenward, and the atmosphere trembles with light, life, love, joy, praise, reverence, and awe? Which brings us to God's response to Moses' prayer in verse 17, where we read, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. I'll grant you my presence, Moses, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And you say, Well, yeah, you know, sure, God's going to grant Moses' request. I mean, He's Moses, you know, like, I mean, he's done all kinds of things for Moses, you know, like, but why my request? Why would he listen to me? You know, it's interesting as you study that and you think about that. Moses lived before the cross of Jesus Christ, and like all of the Old Testament saints, he's looking forward to the one who would lay his life down in suffering and death and then raise it up again in resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Moses is the one who instituted all of the sacrificial system, all of the lambs which pointed to Christ. And all of us live on the other side of the cross. Jesus had a contemporary named John the Baptist, and it's interesting what Jesus says about him. Because he declares John the Baptist, who lived on the Moses side of the cross, just inside of it, but on that side, he says, John the Baptist is the greatest man that has ever lived to this date. Greater than Moses, greater than Abraham. I mean, those are some pretty big names, Joseph, Jacob, Isaac. And in the same breath, in the same sentence, he says, let me tell you about these people over here. Even the least of those in the kingdom of God, this side of the cross, are greater even than John. What has God done for you? Everything. What kind of favor do you have? You have the favor of Jesus upon you. Seems to me that should encourage our prayers. The Apostle Paul certainly thought that. In Romans 8, 32, he said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, also with him, graciously give us all things? Like, for example, I don't know, maybe a special season of divine visitation in which God the Holy Spirit awakens his slumbering church. You know, he he bends down and, and by his spirit he breathes into the embers of a fire that's about to go out until it bursts into flame again. And the point of the flame, guys, is his presence revealed to the world through us. We won't do it and can't any other way. So I close with this. What are you hungry for this morning? Are you hungry for the blessing or the blesser, okay? The deliverer or the deliverance? The salvation or the savior? The gift or the giver? the effects of revival, or the one who brings it. 
And then secondly, how much time do you spend praying for God's presence in your own life and in your family, in this church and in the church? Because again, the goal of revival, what we should most hunger for is the presence of God revealed to the world through us. So let's pray about that. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us the heart of this man, Moses, that you would work by your spirit in such a way as to cause us to reappraise the value of your presence relative to absolutely everything else. Lord, for all that we hunger for, God, make us to hunger for you. And then satisfy our appetite. Lord, fill us. God, revive us. Come down and visit us. Bring your presence among us transform us and then reveal your great glory through broken vessels like us. Lord, do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.